0: Binge Boys! 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 Hal Rudnick, Ron Harris! Binge Boys! Binge Boys! Binge in the fuck out of shit! It's Binge Boys. I'm Hal Rudnick. And with me, as per usual, Lon Harris. Lon, what the hell is going on with you?
1: It's always my inclination because we are on Zoom to wave at you. But they, these, these people can't see me wave. That's silly.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I'm over here blowing kisses. I'm not
1: waving just for your fucking benefit.
0: Listen, I could go full Jeffrey Tubin on this Zoom. And uh, <laughs> aside from uh, a weird reaction from you, the people out there would be none the wiser. Yeah,
1: but me, you would be showing me your penis. So let's not do that.
0: Yes. And Lon, um, I'm not going to show you my pee-pee. I appreciate <laughs> I'm, that. I'm, just so you folks in
1: the audience know, you won't have been granted this insight we are fully clothed when we make binge Fully plays. clothed. Little peek yes. behind the curtain for you. Never yep. once have we made this show in the nude.
0: No, not once. Although, Lon, I can only see you from the waist up. So in True. classic, you, no, look, you could what, be...
1: Pants, baby! They're sweatpants. Yeah, pants, pants, pants. But they are pants. I am wearing them. Listen, unlike a lot of our competitors' podcasts, which are being made while they're naked... We are fully clothed. That's the Bins Boys difference.
0: That is our commitment to excellence. It's our commitment to you, the listener. Just like David Cross in Arrested Development, we are a couple of never nudes when it comes to podcasting.
1: No, I will sometimes get naked, but not while podcasting.
0: Never while not podcasting. Not while podcasting. I'm a podcast never nude.
1: That's it's yes, it's just professional.
0: Before we get too deep into the show, I gotta give a hoot. To any owls out there.
1: If there are owls listening to this podcast, fair enough, but I don't think there are.
0: Or any member of Owl Nation. Lon, there was some streaming news in regards to HBO Max this week, right? When isn't there?
1: uh, Christopher Nolan's favorite streaming service.
0: Oh, yeah. HBO Max is coming in hot with
1: news. Uh, Coming in hot. Warner Brothers basically is like, forget movie theaters. We hate them now. They're dead to us. They're going to release their entire 2021 slate, all of them, all 17 films directly to HBO Max. They will also go out in movie theaters on the same day for, you know, like if if you live somewhere where people are rational and they have worn a mask and stayed home long enough to where you can go to a movie theater. So if you live in one of those places, enlightened places, you will be able to go to a movie theater to see Warner Brothers movies. But if, like us, you live in a benighted medieval kingdom that refuses to uh, understand, uh, you know, microbiology, then then you would be able to watch them directly from your couch on HBO Max. and They're even going to upgrade HBO Max. You'll be able to watch it in like a 4K. You know, they're going to make it a, a better experience. so You can enjoy Godzilla versus Kong on, you know, a 25 inch screen as it was meant to be seen.
0: Yes. Oh, or you can watch HBO Max on your phone,
1: (laughs) on your laptop, on your phone. Yes, the future is now.
0: But if you're in, I guess, Tokyo or New Zealand, you can enjoy the hell out of it in the theater.
1: You can. I mean, if you're in New Zealand, you and the three other people in New Zealand can all meet up afterwards for coffee and talk about it, too. I mean, that'll be
0: fun. Yeah, and uh, then you can go to Hobbiton.
1: The entire city of Wellington can pack into a medium-sized bar and chat about uh, their experiences watching the movie. There you go. It's not a very populated country, Hal. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of sheep, but not a lot of people.
0: Yep. A lot of lush green vistas, but not yeah. a lot of folks. Oh. Christopher Nolan, pretty peeved, pretty peeved about this, lawn, And, yeah, he doesn't like the brave new world.
1: I think that's just because he's in California. He's in California so much wearing suits, and that would make anybody upset.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess... Uh, Tenet did not create this this new model to go by. And uh, I still haven't seen Tenet, Lawn. Have you seen Tenet yet? No,
1: I haven't seen Tenet. I did not want to take my life into my hands. So I didn't go to a theater to see Tenet. It is coming out now. Like it did, did digital next week, I believe, in Blu ray. So we will soon be able to get our hands on Tenet and watch it. Uh, and honestly, Tenet did pretty good. For opening theatrically, mostly in a country where people can't go see movies like, you know, it made three hundred fifty million some internationally. It it did all right. So it's not like this was an indictment of the movie. It was that, you know, people are afraid to leave their house. And I think that, you know, you've got to understand that, like, like, I, I think, you know, I admire Christopher Nolan's commitment to this as an art form. And like my personal feelings are similar, like. I don't want to lose movie theaters. Like, I value going to movie theaters a lot. But he, he seems a little, like, inflexible considering the circumstances. That That's all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, no, going to the movies is a magical experience that still resonates with me and that I'm not jaded about. I love the escape of uh, of, of a movie and seeing it in the theater and having the lights come down and the previews, as long as there aren't, like, 50 previews, like, at the amc or something but you know too many previews at the amc's come on
1: i like that you went in like two minutes like less than two seconds to go from full bore magic of the movies to like observational comedy like what's the deal with theater seats why are the floors so sticky like like we it is easy now to rose colored glasses it a little bit
0: you know what over the, span of, over the span of that two minutes, I've gone a complete 180 and about yeah. face. I'm done with the theaters, baby. Well, because
1: that, well, that's the point I've been making to people, too, is I, we've had nine, ten months now where we're not able to go. And so we're all like, ah, the movie palace. Ah, it's such a thrill. and But, like, movie theaters were already dying a year ago before you knew what COVID-19 was because it's so easy to just pull up Netflix and watch a movie that way. Like consumers had already kind of made this decision. Like rom-coms already basically didn't exist in in studios anymore and like this is I I it, it, we're really accelerating a process that had already started. This isn't like COVID came in and killed movie theaters that were doing the greatest business of their lives a year ago and there was no end in sight and it was like yeah, I think
0: COVID was impactful but uh Well, obviously,
1: COVID's impactful, but I'm saying, like, I feel like what we're seeing is a trend that was not... This didn't come from nowhere. This was a trend that we were already seeing. It was just going to be a very gradual downturn. And then COVID came along and was like, actually, what if all of a sudden we just flip the off switch? And, like, I think that theaters will come back on some level. I may have even said this on the show before. Like, I think... There'll just be fewer of them. It'll be like we're going to go from a movie theater being like drugstores where they're like everywhere. And it's just part of being in a civilized place is like there's a movie theater on almost every corner. We, we were sort of like at that at one point, And now I think we'll go to like movie theaters are more like a bowling alley or like a mini golf course. Like every community's got one, but maybe one, like not five.
0: Right. Or you could have these uh, specialized movie theaters that become like, a, uh, to what you're saying, a little more rare and kind of an event like a Disney theater where you get all the Marvel movies and the Star Wars stuff.
1: And again, we're already seeing that. I think it'll be like, well, there's the draft house model of like making an evening out, get some beers, get dinner, you know, like it's that kind of a place where there's going to be like the social version where it's like. Go with a bunch of creds, and it's rowdy and there's like other stuff to do there. Like a VR experience next door. Like, yeah, I think we'll figure out ways to make this a thing that is still doable as a night out. I just think the idea that we used to have of like going out to a movie constantly was like a thing everybody did. And there were movie theaters everywhere. And it was just like a daily part of American life. Like, well, we're probably getting we were probably going to get away from that eventually anyway. And now it'll just be very accelerated.
0: Or you can create the movie experience at home by making, again, making your floors sticky and then getting a big container of butter with a pump on it. Uh, you just, you know what? I'm a fountain machine, a fountain drink machine and a butter pump away from never going, never going to the movie theater again.
1: It's. If you saw that movie theater butter, what it looks like when it goes into the machine before you start pumping it, you might, it's a little off-putting,
0: I have to say. Oh, Lon, <laughs> spill the tea on that butter. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: a little, it's just like gelatinous and like blob-like. Like, it doesn't look like you feel like butter should
0: look. It. It. Yeah. And how much of it is actually butter?
1: No, it's not.
0: That's not butter that's but in there. I mean, I don't know. Polysorbate. Yeah, 90. I don't know. It's
1: it's probably mostly like sunflowers and so something that was created in a lab that that no, doesn't exist.
0: Wait, sunflowers? Well, like sunflower
1: oil. Like that's what you know. Like that's what I think that's what the oil is. Canola, one of those.
0: Yeah, I I think uh, Christopher Nolan. I you know I, I enjoy his films. I think he can stand to chill out on this because it's it's an overreaction. We're in a pandemic. Well,
1: like we saw Patty Jenkins. The, the Wonder Woman 1984 director, Patty Jenkins, today made a statement and it was like, look, I love movie theaters and we never imagined this movie would not open in theaters. And that's where it should be. But I want people to be able to see it and I don't want them to get sick. So this is a good compromise. And it's like, well, that's reasonable. And like, you know, I, I, I get that not all the filmmakers with their movies coming out were approached like Patty Jenkins, where there were like long discussions that she was part of. Some people were sort of blindsided by this. And I totally get why they would be a little like put off, like Legendary, which co-produced and co-financed Dune and Godzilla versus Kong with Warner Brothers. They're saying they might sue because they're saying they weren't involved early in these conversations. They just found out this is what's happening like a few hours before the rest of us did. So like, I get that there's complications on that level. I just feel like, yeah, Christopher Nolan is such a, he's taken such a hard line approach that like, you can only go see these movies in theaters and you must, and that's where they are. And that's it. And we have to be dedicated to that and that alone. And it's just like, man, people are sick. Like there's a lot of sick people. Like you might at least just have to allow other people, like at least take one big step back and be like, I'm going to just let this happen. And then once things have calmed down, sort of let people know where I stand. It's just, I don't know. It's very over the top. That's my take.
0: The one thing that might be able to save it is if we get all the anti-mask Karens out there to go into the theaters, put down your hard-earned Karens, fill those seats, then we can save the theaters for good old Chris Nolan. But otherwise. The first
1: time I've ever heard the phrase your hard-earned Karens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those Karens are out there. They're making money. They got American greenbacks in their pocket. They can slap them down at their at that their at their AMCs and their their different uh cinema palaces out there. But alas, we shall see. Lon, we watched some stuff this week. You want to talk about it? Sure.
1: Let's talk about it.
0: All right. Lon, one of the things we're going to talk about today, let's jump into it. David Fincher's latest film starring Gary Oldman, Mank, on Netflix. Yeah. You know what? Boy, I really liked Mank. I'm in the tank for Mank, you,
1: Oh, wow, in the tank for Mank. Yeah, you're a Manker from way back. I Listen, I don't want to knock Mank. It's a good film. I enjoyed watching it. It's made in the style of a film from the era in which it's set. Like, the the first thing you got to talk about is that Fincher directs it like it's a 30s movie with that same style and aesthetic, and it looks great, beautiful black-and-white cinematography. It makes it very distinctive. It really stands out from other movies this year. So I, I, I really appreciated that. But I, I don't know. It, it left me a little cold.
0: Let, let's let jump into that in, in a sec. I just want to uh, piggyback on what you were saying about the look of the film, because I loved it as well. And, you know, when you think of different black-and-white films, like, you know, you're Francis Haas, or what's the Coen brothers?
1: Uh, the Man Who Wasn't There.
0: Yeah, The Man Who Wasn't There, or whatever. Th- this particular film, it is filmed in the classic style of the 40s, as, 30s, 40s, as you were saying, Lon, and early on, when you see some of the cinematography of just shadows in a room, just uh, like a simple, like, shadow it's so beautiful. It's really striking the way it looks compared to just you know a modern day filmmaking with but regular cinematography. So it's really lovely. Man,
1: it wasn't there as riffing on a later era in filmmaking, more like the hard boiled film noir stuff, like more like the fifties. I will, I will say that. But your your point is well taken. And it really well, but here's what I. Fincher's taking the visual aesthetic of that era, but I don't know if he's taking inspiration from how this story would have been told in that era, because he's making this movie that I feel like on some level is very, like, we don't get to really know Mac. We're told a lot about him, but he's so drunk and he's so in his own world for almost the entire running time, we're given very little context. Like, I feel like a 30s movie would have put you solidly in his corner. Like, this would be a story about this man and about how everybody else was compromised, but he had, like, a real artistic vision. And we would have sort of followed that thread through. But it's doing this very modern movie thing of being like, look at this ridiculous drunk. Like, he may have been on the right side of this argument, But what a what a ridiculous waste he was, and and it's just like we're so in in judgment of him right from the start that I feel like we never get to know him. He's a he's a complete enigma to us.
0: We don't really go down the rabbit hole and explore some of his different screenplays that brought him prominence in Hollywood. We're kind of like start in the flashbacks. We're kind of.
1: I mean, it's not even backstory. It's like, what's his take on any of this?
0: Yeah, in the middle of his journey, but I would disagree as far as like not knowing him. I think we got to see his political leanings. We got to see his influence in Hollywood and how. But,
1: but he... I think you're you just put your your point on it. You're exactly right. We hear a lot of him ranting about his political beliefs that he's he's this you know he likes Upton Sinclair. He's progressive. He's pro labor, and he's up against. Hearst, obviously, and and then all of the people who are sort of in Hearst's pocket who are doing Hurst bidding because Hearst is so rich and powerful. And we're, we get so much of that conflict. And I get that that's what the film is about on one level. But I don't really feel like we get to know a lot about Mank otherwise. Like who he is as a person, why all these people want to work with him, what his previous relationships with any of these people are, what his relationship with his wife is really all about. Like, not all of that takes this huge backseat to him getting drunk and yelling at people about unions and unionizing and labor and Upton Sinclair and who's going to be governor and all this stuff that is kind of at the margins of the actual story.
0: Yeah, he was a central force in the Writers Guild getting uh, that established. But I don't I, I have to disagree. I don't think it's at the margin of the story. I think it's at the heart of it because this story, Mank is secondary. His biography is secondary to and as you were saying, but I think It didn't bother me as much because the primary goal here is his intrinsic involvement in the creation of Citizen Kane, that he was the only one, that he was the only one that could have written this.
1: Well, it's funny that you would say that because it's very disputed historically whether or not this is true at all. Like this is Pauline Kael wrote an essay making this argument that- Herman Mankiewicz actually was the one who wrote Citizen Kane. And it was, Pauline Kane was sort of purposefully like, well, there's this auteur theory that Orson Welles was the author of Citizen Kane, and it's his movie, and she was offering this, like, counter-argument that actually Mank was a, you know, key force behind this story, and it was based on his personal experiences in some ways and all that. History has not necessarily been kind to that essay. Like, we now believe, or I don't say we, it's been sort of discredited. The idea is that Cale was working off of a very early draft and Orson Welles did make a lot of changes later on. So we're, we're not sure how much exactly of Citizen Kane was Mank versus how much was Orson Welles. And obviously they each claimed that they were the more instrumental ones. Here's what I would say. If this was about the creative process that led to the creation of Citizen Kane, I think you'd need a lot more about Mank as a writer. I think you'd need more about his relationship with Orson Welles, and I think you'd need even more about the, the alcohol and how he was using the alcohol to... Revisit these memories or not, and why he needed to be drunk in order to write. But all that stuff is kind of mentioned so that we could delve so deeply into the governor's race. And that's, it's like, who cares really? Like, in terms of this story, Upton Sinclair, we barely meet for half of a scene. We never meet the Republican candidate.
0: Yeah, played by Bill Nye, the science played guy. Played by
1: Bill Nye, the science guy. And it, it just like, it felt like. It felt like there there was so much interest in that. And I just like, it's a biopic. Like, I want to get to know Mank the guy before I care about his bold stand on behalf of Upton Sinclair.
0: Yeah, you see, I I, I disagree. I think we get just enough and we his political leanings are so important to the story because it is that collision with Hearst. And it is his like he's a friend. And, but he's also an adversary, and it posits him as the perfect person to have written this, this scathing takedown of William Randolph Hearst in the form of Citizen Kane.
1: I don't feel like we get really any sense for his relationship with Hearst. He kind of makes fun of him. He's sort of not—we don't get a lot of scenes with them together where we get a key for— Here's what their relationship was like. He's just kind of there in her orbit a few times. And the other thing I would say is I do think Amanda Seyfried's very good in the film as Marion Davies. There's a scene towards the end where she goes to see Mank while he's in the process of writing this film. That's in many ways about her and it's not kind necessarily to her. And I, I, it just the scene is not sad. The, the, they're, the, they're two good actors. It's a well-written scene It should be sad. It's about the death of this friendship and how she doesn't mean enough to him for him to abandon this crusade he's on. And it's not the way it plays in the movie is just it's just interesting and well shot. It's not sad. And that was to me the moment where I was like, you know what? There's something there's like a piece missing here. Like this is a this is an interesting story, but it's not a compelling,
0: emotionally grounded story. But I agree with you that Amanda Seafried was very good and that scene resonated with some poignancy because she was talking about her relationship with Hearst and how it has matured and that there was a real connection there. And they came to, pardon the expression, because she's a woman, but to like what would be called a gentleman's agreement where he was like, I'm sorry if it gets made. And she said, I'm sorry if it doesn't get made. And they agreed to disagree at the end. So I don't know if it was necessarily supposed to be sad, but there was a poignancy.
1: It just feels like there should be poignancy there. And then it just, the the, the scene... The scene just, just kind of happens. And I, I I mean, I, 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 a lot of people have also talked about how Gary Oldman is too old. And I, I agree. I mean, I don't think that's like a deal breaker. But I, I do agree. And I feel like it's really noticeable
0: there. Yeah, Gar- Gary Oldman is 62. And Herman Mankiewicz was 33 at the time. At the time he wrote. was her
1: first. Like, so you could say he would have been between like 30 and 40 during the... Because the movie set over like sort of a decade. So... Between 1930 and 1940, so he would have been between like 30 and 40 years old, and he should be roughly the same age as Amanda Seyfried. And it's really noticeable in that scene at the end that they're not remotely close to being the same age. And I do think at that one moment, it's it's sort of
0: well, Mankiewicz was ravaged by alcoholism. It's true. He died at 55. It, it's true. He
1: was not a healthy man. But I, I, but to me, it goes back to it's just another thing that prev-
0: and in a car wreck that.
1: It's just another thing that prevents me from feeling emotionally connected to that scene as opposed to, and then this happens. Now this is what happens and this is how they agree to separate. And I, I don't know, like, I feel like there's a little... There... I hear where you're coming from,
0: but yeah, I, I I gotta reiterate that this film, I felt like it gave me just enough to know this guy's journey. And I loved the insight as... A, okay, so as a Citizen Kane fan, hearing this connection that Mankiewicz had, and I thought we did get a a nice glimpse of his relationship with Hearst. They were uh, friends, they went to dinner, like, they they had had them at dinner parties, friendly acquaintances at the very least. But I mean,
1: almost every time we see them together, we see them meet once, and he basically just zings him, and Hearst is like, he's, I like him. Invite him to my next party. And then we see him get drunk and argue with him, and then we see him Get very drunk and humiliate him. And I believe those are their only scenes together. I don't think there is another scene. There's never a scene where they're just friends having a friendly conversation. Not one. And I think
0: you've got to do that. Probably by design. I, I mean, maybe that obviously wasn't the relationship. David I didn't need that, Lon. This movie gave me just enough. Well, all right.
1: I mean, okay, that's fine. I mean, obviously, it's David Fincher. Everything is on purpose, but. Like, how are you supposed to show us the rise and fall of this friendship if we never see the friendship? If it goes, Because immediately... it wasn't
0: that close. It wasn't that close of but a But you friendship, just said
1: that this what... friendship is the reason that Mankowitz was the one who needed to write this movie, which is the whole story. What's more important? Like, why do we need to get to know Mank and his German nurse? Why is that more important than his relationship with hers? Or the British lady who's typing
0: for him. Because that showed another side to Mank, because the German nurse said that Mank actually saved, se- like, her village. But
1: that's, te- that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's telling, not showing. That's her giving a monologue, oh, no, he is a good man because of what he did off camera. Like, oh, that's, like, that's not, I, I don't connect to a character because of that. That's just, you pulled it off Wikipedia. Like, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, it's doing all this stuff to give us all of this information about him. But information is not, that doesn't make me care about someone. That's just information
0: about them. To me, that showed kind of this guy had a certain modesty about him. And the, he didn't wear that on his sleeve.
1: It's just, it's like, no, he's good. I know he's acting like an ass, but no, he's good. Like, that's what that, to me, felt like. It's like... Well, I I get that he's a drunk, and you want to show that he's falling down drunk all the time, and it's hard. I that's hard. Like that's a difficult project to set yourself up for. Like I'm going to show this person, and he's going to basically be an alcoholic wreck. But I also have to make you care about him. But that's the mission of this movie. Like if you're going to do it, that's what you have to do. That's the challenge that's laid out before you.
0: Well, I think this movie gave us just enough about this guy, and. I found the connection between Mank and Hearst fascinating. Just the, the fact that Mank got to be a fly on the wall in Hearst Castle, that he knew this guy, and then he used all of that knowledge against him. And the political campaign of uh, Upton Sinclair versus uh, the, uh, the the uh, other candidate...
1: Right, you don't remember the guy's name, because
0: who cares? Yeah, no, not who cares. It was Upton Sinclair came out uh, of this film as sort of like as a Bernie Sanders-type figure. And they he had a huge groundswell of support at the time, being this liberal ch- agent of change, and he lost. And we learn in the movie that one of Manx's friends at the studio was kind of a pawn in the game and befell some very terrible circumstances because he helped get... The other guy, not Upton Sinclair, elected. And these events really resonated with Herman Mankiewicz. I mean, all of that was central to the story. Basically, this election killed his friend, it killed so much of his spirit, and it really mattered. And that's why it was shown. That was why we focused on this stuff, because Hearst was so instrumental in that. This is what influenced mankowitz
1: i mean that's that's a bunch of plot stuff but like i'm talking about the emotional through line not like i mean all that stuff happens in the movie but i don't know if we made the connection between like there's barely a moment of mank with that character like we don't really know that character who by the way amalgamation that's not a real guy shelly metcalf Shelley Metcalf's the character's name that Hal's describing in Mank. I think they said it was based on a real guy named Felix Feist, but not really, they amalgamated him. So that's not that's parts not necessarily all like a true story. But I don't know, like I, I again, if I feel like there's a lot of this stuff in this movie, but there wasn't anything that they picked and they they really delved into to where I gave a shit. Like I don't feel like there was any time spent with Mank and Shelley Metcalf establishing their bond so that when tragic things happened to Shelly Metcalf, we were like, oh, this is really going to radically alter Mank. It's just like a guy he knew that's in a scene with like eight other guys. There's just like this, this weird lack of focus here. And there's so much time spent on just the drinking and like what a mean drunk he was and how he would drink and spout off and get himself into trouble. And I feel like less of that and more grounding us in this guy and his world And what mattered to him and what his perspective was and maybe a little bit. of I know we we open with him and he's already away from home and he's got the leg injury and he's like maybe show a little bit of his regular life. I don't know. There's got to be something. But it's a long movie and I never feel like I get any closer to like getting to know Mank and the movie's called Mank. I want to Mank him for his service. I want to say Manx for the memories.
0: I you you and I you you and I uh came came out of this with with really different perspectives here because I thought it all worked. You gave us just enough and I was fascinated by this connection and this insight that Mank had to Hearst. I didn't know the story and you know whether, you know, according to, you know, Pauline Cal. It the what,
1: Mank, Mank knew Hearst And Marion Davies, that's not up for debate. We know that those relationships existed. It's more who was more instrumental in what we now know of as Citizen Kane. Like, was it Mank's idea and Wells took some of these ideas and changed some dialogue? Or was it Wells' idea and Mank formed it into a first draft of a script? That's the debate.
0: Right. Well, I thought it works on several levels. I think Mank, you know, could be, uh, you know, especially in this weird year absolutely in the running for uh award season and i'm talking the major the major awards on
1: <laughs> some of the some of the performances definitely like the, the cinematography like i'm sure it'll be in the conversation
0: and you mentioned that it, it focuses so much on him being a mean drunk i mean that scene towards the end of the film with the don quixote monologue i thought that like that was mind blowing that was so awkward and tense and well played and y- you disagree
1: no look gary Oldman's a good actor if you give him a big monologue and tell him he's like a crazy drunk and he's unhinged uh, charles dance is a great actor who's playing Hurst. like they're all good acting like it's not terrible i'm not saying the movie is terrible i'm just saying like it's oddly like even in that scene it's awkward and uncomfortable but it's not tragic it should be It should feel more sad, and I don't think we're connected enough to Mank to feel sad for him.
0: Oh, I, I completely disagree, Lon. At the same time, in that scene, you see Gary Oldman committing career suicide and holding court in this brilliant fever dream.
1: You understand, telling me things that are happening in the movie does not
0: disprove my reaction to them. Like that is what's no happening. i'm not t- i'm not trying to tell you things that happen i'm saying that that scene the, it, re- it doesn't resonate
1: because we don't know this man he's just he's been like this in every scene of the movie
0: yeah i, I disagree i thought I, they gave me enough they gave me enough he
1: keeps walking by people are like hey man how's it going it's like why does that guy like him he's awful he's always awful to everybody he's not <laughs> nice to a person in this movie Maybe his wife, like, once in a flashback.
0: And and you're, I think you're touching on, like, an interesting point about the whole movie. Even though it's a love letter to the time period, it's not a love letter to Hollywood. its It's got a really dark, cynical edge.
1: And that's fine, but it's still, it's just, it's the anti-hero thing. It's like, I'm fine with making him an anti-hero and giving us this, like, we're going to follow this irascible... Mean, drunk guy But you still We have to be in his corner Like Otherwise It's just like Why am I Following this guy Instead of somebody Would this movie Be more interesting If it was about Marion Davies Like Probably Like Yeah, yes I'm inclined to say She's the character I felt more compelled
0: by and, I mean I think there could be A great movie there
1: I mean I feel like She might even be A better window Into this story A more compassionate window Certainly
0: Sure Sure but we're, in talking about Citizen Kane and how that came to be, the, you know, the, the, who knows Orson Welles, Herman Mankiewicz know the truth and they're both dead.
1: Well, there is also, I would, the last thing I would say, there is a kind of a counterpoint movie to this, which HBO made in the late nineties called RKO 281. Have you ever seen it? hmm That's sort of this same story, but from Orson Welles' perspective, it's Lee Stryver plays Orson Welles. Interestingly enough, John Malkovich plays Mank in that one, and James Cromwell is Hearst. Melanie Griffith is Marion Davies. And it is, it's sort of looking at these same characters and these same relationships, obviously because it's from Orson Welles' perspective, it's about his contributions as opposed to specifically Mank's. But, I don't know, I almost feel like the HBO version, it does give you a better sense for some of the major, the major moves and things. Like, I, I almost feel like it's weird for me to say that the HBO version does a better overall job with the story than the David Fincher version. I can't believe I'm hearing myself say that out loud and obviously it's not as cinematic but yeah I almost feel like you'd get a better sense for the stakes from that than this take on it, which is yeah, a little tough to a little tough to pierce for
0: me. Oh, yeah. See, I I completely disagree. You and I are uh, diametrically opposed on Mank. I I thought it was, I thought it was uh, well told and uh, beautiful to look at. And yeah, they they gave us just enough. Now I want to address before we move on and talk about our next program that we watch. I just want to, a lot of people have asked me on social media, do I need to know or have seen Citizen Kane to get or watch Mank? And yes, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, A, fucking watch Citizen Kane. It's a cultural touchstone.
1: Honestly, I think you probably should know a little bit like, in addition to watching Citizen Kane, it, it kind of wouldn't hurt to read up a little about Wells. and Like, the movie's not giving you, it doesn't give you background. Like, it doesn't at all.
0: That I will completely agree with There's
1: you. no narrative or emotional background.
0: Yeah, if you go into this cold, like, if you don't know who William Randolph Hearst is, if you don't know the the story of Citizen Kane and Orson Welles being this wunderkind who went to Hollywood, and then...
1: Yeah, they're not doing you any, they're not doing, giving you any catch-up at all. It's just here's what happened and hopes that you figure out get your bearings.
0: Yeah. So, you know, as a real cane head, I was all about it. But if you're not if you're not a Citizen Kane stan <laughs> kiddos, then uh yeah, you better uh you better watch Citizen Kane. But Citizen Kane is an excellent film that is was such a trailblazer as far as just storytelling. Really it, it's a great film, so I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's black and white. So anyway. Lon, any other thoughts on Mank? No, let's move on. Oh, I never I'm, i will never move on from Mank, Lon. No, I know.
1: You're you're but we're I see, will talk about uh, Mank for
0: weeks. I'll I'll put a pin in our mank talk. Yeah. And we might have to call this the episode Coming up, let's uh Talk about some lighthearted fun with Auntie Donna's big ol' house of fun. Bridge boys, bridge boys. Bridge the fuck out of shit. Lon, we both watched some or all or bits and pieces of a new Netflix sketch comedy show, Auntie Donna's big ol' house of fun. Yeah,
1: thought it was a good time. I enjoyed it. I will say there's one of the guys from Auntie Donna has a hairstyle that, I found it, I found it really distracting and hard to hard to deal with. I have there's a guy, he's got, I'm trying to figure out which one of the three guys from Auntie Donna it is. I believe it's Mark Samuel, Samuel Bonanno. Bonano. And he's got the sides of he first of all, big glasses, big bushy beard. Then he's got the sides of his head shaved, and the top part there's hair, and that's tied into a man bun. This is three too many things, sir. I'm sorry. There's so much. There is so much happening on this gentleman's head that by the time I've wrapped my mind around all of it, I've missed eight jokes. It doesn't work. They're very beardy. The first thing about Auntie Donna is you would think three dudes are going to be in a sketch comedy series together. They're the comedy troupe. If all three of them show up with beards, you think one of them is going to be like, you know what? One of them would be like, "You know what? I'm going to be the one. I'm going to take one for the team. I'll go beardless just so we have some facial hair diversity in the group." They were like, "No. In Australia, we all have beards. It's the beardiest sketch comedy troupe of all time.
0: It's very it, They're very beardy, but I the, I find though the three gentlemen look nothing alike.
1: Oh, I wasn't getting them confused with one another. I just was like, one of you should not have a beard, just for balance. I will say, my thoughts about all these gentlemen's looks aside, I did think the show was funny. It reminded me a lot, how, tell me if you remember this, it reminded me a lot of Stella. Do you remember Stella? Well, uh, the, Some of the three of the gentlemen from the state, Michael Ian Black, David Wayne, and Michael Showalter, after the state, they did a, it was basically like this where it's sketches, but they kind of pretended that it was also a sitcom. Like it was nominally a sitcom about those three guys living together, but there were no sitcom stories. It was just crazy, absurd nonsense. It's sort of what these guys are doing, where every episode of Auntie Donna kind of opens like, well, they're housemates, and there's going to be some story about them in this house. And then it just like falls apart right away, and they kind of abandon what the story would have been.
0: Yeah, for sure. The thing I really like about this show is that it takes sketch comedy and it kind of just like throws all the rules out just as far as like, oh, there doesn't need to be like this single linear game or funny thing that you stick to. And it'll divert, it'll go sideways. It'll like, you never know what kind of thread of funny that it's going to follow down the rabbit hole. And because there are a lot of unexpected turns and there are literally kind of like no rules to what's going to happen next, it keeps you a little bit off kilter and it's really fun and surprising in that way. It's kind of, it's it reminds me a little bit, I definitely agree with the uh, Stella point of view. Also, there's a little bit of like, just the an Adult Swim vibe, kind of a Tim and Eric or, or or Eric Andre show, but a little bit more twee and lighthearted.
1: I think the Tim and Eric thing that they do, I noticed this when I was, wa- I was watching it with uh, my friend Drew and we commented on this in real time as we were watching. They do the same thing Tim and Eric do, which is like a very quick 90 degree emotional turn. So, like, everybody's having fun, laughing, goofing around, and then something totally innocent will happen. But record scratch, 180, all of a sudden it's very dark and serious. Like, what the hell did you just say? And, like, they use that a lot for jokes, which is also very much a Tim and Eric thing. Like, going from lighthearted to incredibly dark, going from horrifyingly dark to suddenly very light and silly. You know, those kind of veering wildly between the emotional states, I think, runs through this whole thing.
0: Yeah, and there'll be extreme violence or it'll get super weird or just inanimate objects will talk or it'll take, you know, something that's just like a one-liner and turn that one-liner into like a four-minute bit. You know, as opposed to SNL, which is also a sketch show, uh, where you have a series of just, you know, five-minute sketches or seven-minute sketches and it's about one thing and there's a grounded reality to it. This is just light-hearted, insanity, and, it, yeah, like you said, it'll get really dark and really intense, and then it'll get, you know, super twee and fun and sweet, and then everything in between.
1: It's also, it's a good judicious use of celebrity guests. Like, I think a lot of Netflix shows, because you get a Netflix comedy show, and they give you the Rolodex, and it's like, who would you want to have on your show? And a lot of shows, like, they get carried away, and it just feels like constant... Interruptions with dumb cameos or appearances, and this day it's, it's like a very light touch. Like every once in a while, like Ed Helms will show up, or Anthony Starr for a, like Homelander from from The Boys shows up, or like yes. Paul F. Tompkins has a very funny uh, little role. But if they don't overdo it, it doesn't feel like you're constantly waiting to see who's gonna show up. And at one point, they tease like Jerry Seinfeld is gonna be on, and it does not wind up that way. And I, I really thought that was clever and, and well done. And and a good balance, like as the opposite of what that one guy is doing with his facial accessories. Which this is a good, appropriate balance, as opposed to way, way too much going
0: on. It is, yeah, it is a nice balance, a deft touch, and it's Ed Helms is one of the executive producers on it, along with Scott Ackerman, who you uh, might uh, know from Comedy Bang Bang. And uh, yeah, the 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 Seinfeld moment was uh, reminiscent to me of like something that Eric Andre does when he brings out like kind of a a lookalike or not even lookalike and introduce them as George Clooney or some other celebrity. Right. Yeah. So there's like a real fun unpredictability about this show. And if you're just looking for something to take your mind off of all the doom and gloom in the world.
1: uh, Yeah. I mean, it was only six episodes. This was a really quick binge. Like I didn't even realize I was it's one of those shows where you don't even realize you're on the last episode and then it just ends and you're like, oh. I guess now I'm going to wait for season two. Also, Ify, Ify Nwadwe is in the, the final episode, which was a nice surprise for me. I didn't even realize uh, he was going to show up. And then he's one of the queen's personal bodyguards.
0: Excellent. Love me some iffy Nwadwe. Very cool. There you go. That was Auntie Donna's Big Ol' House of Fun on Netflix. Check it out if you're so inclined.
1: One more thing to cover. Should we go right into it?
0: Yeah. Long- All right. We both watched the latest from documentary auteur, the documentarian, much decorated, Errol Morris.
1: I thought you forgot his name for a second. You were doing the like celebrated...
0: Stretch, stretch. Documentarian, like
1: you were looking for it. I was like, is he going to get there? This is...
0: Errol Morris, the the man behind The Thin Blue Line, Fog of War, and many other great documentaries. This is my psychedelic love story.
1: Yeah, it's a it's 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 technically a documentary about Timothy Leary about the years he was sort of being pursued by the U.S. government. I was bouncing around Europe, you know, as, as sort of this advocate for LSD use and counterculture figure. And it is told yeah. from the uh, you know perspective of his you know his girlfriend at the time, Joanna Harcourt Smith. But in Errol Morris style, like, that's kind of the, the premise. Like, the conceit is, we'll look at this fascinating time in the counterculture and this very famous figure, but we'll do it through the eyes of, like, this European socialite who is with him. But then... Morris can't resist and the movie basically becomes about her because she's such a weird character.
0: Absolutely. And just for those who need a little more backstory, Timothy Leary was involved in acid experiments at Harvard University back in like the early sixties. And then he became like the like one of the l- biggest figures in counterculture. Tune in or what turn tune in turn off and drop out Uh, turn
1: on turn on
0: you don't want to turn off oh tune in turn what is it
1: (laughs) tune in turn on drop out
0: there you go that's what i'm gonna do after this podcast yeah and just well known hung out with people like john lennon and all sorts of uh celebrities uh in the in the 70s
1: they would they were like not goofing around like this was like dedicating your life to like advocating everybody to do lots of hardcore drugs like They moved to, like, Afghanistan for a while. Like, they were on, like, an adventure. Joanna Harcourt Smith, uh, fascinatingly enough, died shortly after making this one. She passed away in November of this year. So now this movie, which just came out, is sort of already this kind of memorial to her as well. I really loved it. I, I thought it was super fascinating. And she's really just an interesting character. Like, she would be an interesting person to make a documentary about, even if she didn't have this connection to this like, key historical figure just because she's bananas.
0: Absolutely. She lived a life. And this documentary is, it's kind of weird in as much as there's only, we only talk to one person, her. And, you know, Errol Morris chiming in and he, like, he is definitely a good kind of proxy for the audience member because, like, she says these things or she name drops somebody and he'll be like, wait, what? You really did that? That really happened? And uh, so, like, there's just enough Errol Morris. I always enjoyed hearing his kind of incredulous responses to her. But a fascinating woman. Only one person, her, is telling the story. It's not a series of interviews. We don't get ex CIA members. You know, there's a lot of stock footage and there's a lot of, like, archival footage. But she is so fascinating that she holds court and you don't need anything else also the visual style of this film is is super rad like really just bright bizarre colors and acid blotter paper used in some of the transitions and it's just got a super cool look to it
1: yeah i mean it's try it's kind of it's trippy and it's got like a very psychedelic sort of aesthetic that works really well Morris did another film that's kind of a profile like this called tabloid a few years ago. That's also brilliant. And it's also just like an interesting woman gets to tell him her life story and about this adventure that she went on. And that's really what it is. It's like a storytelling movie. And he's developed these techniques to interview people and to record. I mean, you know, kind of his signature image is a person like talking right into the camera and close up, like relating to you. Their story, and it does, it feels like sitting across from a person who's interesting, who's just going to, like, unload on you for two hours and walk you through this crazy narrative. So, yeah, if you're an Errol Morris fan or interested at all in this period of American history and sort of the CIA and psychedelics in the 60s and the war on drugs in its early days, and I, I can't recommend this highly enough. I thought it was really a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it's too bad Timothy Leary uh, isn't around to visit Portland, Oregon, and just do all the drugs up there because you could do all the drugs and just, it's so weird. I mean, some drug laws in this country are freaking archaic. I mean, you got to Like, let me get on my soapbox. All like just all the marijuana convictions that have happened over the years. And now you see people like John Boehner, the former Speaker of the House, are making huge money in the cannabis industry. It's crazy. But the war on drugs, it hurt a lot of people. And there's a really interesting story here about how the CIA was just like fueled by Reagan and the Nixon administration, just like conducting this ruthless war on drugs and worth noting that joanna harcourt smith felt like she was sucked into that and used as a pawn by the cia potentially and she contacted errol morris after seeing his netflix uh series wormwood
1: right which was also about mk ultra and the cia experiments with psychedelics yeah so this is it's a little bit of a companion piece to that that's much more of yeah. That's more of like a hybrid, like there's scripted parts of that. And it's more experimental than this. But they are both about, yeah, the U.S. government's response to drug culture in the
0: same era. The striking thing about Wormwood, which I think is also absolutely worth watching, the recreations in Wormwood are some of the most startling documentary recreations I've ever seen. And now I feel like it's being emulated a little bit. But you had Peter Sarsgaard and like well-known actors bringing these episodes and these things that happen in the CIA acid tests to life and that was like that added this other level to that documentary but yeah Joanna harcourt smith fascinating woman her her grandfather was like this self-hating Jew who built all these Jews out of their wealth during the Holocaust. Her mother claims to have slept with Benito Mussolini, the Italian dictator.
1: It reminded me a little of The Vow. You watched The Vow, right? Yes. When Catherine Oxenberg was talking to her mom on the phone, and she's like, "Could you call Charles and see if he could help? Let's get. Let's talk to Charles." And then she hangs up the phone, and the filmmaker is like. Who's Charles? And she goes, "Oh, Prince Charles. My mom's cousin's with Prince Charles." So I was like, "Maybe he could help." And it's so, it's so casual, and like that's what a lot of these conversations with uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith feel like. It's, it's like she won't only just be like, i were at the party," and Andy Warhol was there, and I talked to him briefly, and then she'll just drop it, like it's not crazy, and like she knows. She knows that that is a name that we all know and are going to react to, but she still just kind of throws it out there, like, "Oh yes, I know, I partied with Andy Warhol." What?
0: Yeah, no, she's a fascinating woman who lived a life, and you know, like you said, Lon, she died just before this was released, so we're lucky to have you know this uh, record on film, and it's and it's a really well told. Story.
1: I feel like that is some of what's in Errol Morris's mind when he's making these kinds of films. It's like on one level, this is entertaining and it's a documentary and it's informative. But another level, yeah, it's, it's a record of this story and this perspective that will one day lose and won't be around anymore. And now we have it forever.
0: Absolutely. And he and he has, you know, Errol. It, it, it's cr- stupid of me to even say it because it's so obvious. But Errol Morris has such a deft touch. Making this film visually engrossing, but then getting out of this woman's way and just letting her talk. And she's, at the same time, just insane and a delight. And for doing all that acid, she's got some serious recall. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) It's not like pot. I think you can still remember things if you've done a lot of acid.
0: Well, we're about to find out because Lon and I both took acid right before the show Today and- Wait,
1: did you say we were supposed to do acid? Yes. Oh, I I thought in honor of Mank, we were both supposed to become debilitating
0: alcoholics. So you've been drunk this whole show.
1: I spent this entire week drinking just bottle after bottle of rye whiskey. I just thought, oh, that that it makes t- now it makes more sense. And, yeah, honestly, like now. I feel like I get it. Gotcha. I feel like that's why your pupils have been so dilated, and that's why my liver is failing. I, now I understand.
0: My LSD is starting to kick in, man. And my fingers, they're looking super fingery, Lon. Like they're wiggling. And look, look, at, can you see my fingers wiggling, Lon?
1: I can see your fingers wiggling, but there's four of them. And also, I have vomited six times since we started recording.
0: Lon, the water in my glass, it's extra wet, man. You
1: know what, Hal? Now that we're at the end of this podcast, I can finally tell you people what I really think. And I've kept this quiet for too long. You drinking your water? Hey, what do you know about the working
0: man, you son of a bitch? Lon, your eyes have turned into emojis, my dude. And your hair is like a field of tall green grass. And your beard is like,
1: oh, Lon. Well, I can't speak to any of that. But I'm positive this podcast is the best work I've ever done. And I want my name all over
0: it, top to bottom. Lon, have I ever told you about the time that I hung out with the Dalai Lama and David Bowie, bro?
1: No, you've never told me about that. I don't think that happened.
0: Oh, man. I'm, you know what? I gotta go. I don't
1: even know if David Bowie hung out with the Dalai Lama. That's, those are two, are they related characters?
0: Have I ever told you that I hung out with Kiss while they were wearing all their makeup and Jay-Z and the Pope, on?
1: <laughs> that you have told me about, yes. Kiss and the Pope, they go way back. Only Pope Benedict,
0: though. <laughs> Lucy in the sky with diamonds, man. Lon, I, w- I gotta go uh, just get out into the grassy field here because my house is killing my buzz here. Yeah,
1: I'm gonna go urinate on something both...
0: Tell them where they could find you, Lon.
1: Well, first I'm gonna go urinate on something both inappropriate and public. But then you could find me... Because drunk, that's the bit ridiculous. I'm drunk. But after that, you could find me on Twitter at L-O-N-S and also find my newsletter, Inside Streaming, all about all of this stuff. Less yelling about mank, but all still all about streaming news and TV shows and films. That's at inside.com slash streaming. Find it there.
0: Man, now that I'm tripping on acid, I love mank even more. It's
1: the only time that sentence will ever be
0: said in English. I'm going to put on mank and try to crawl into the screen, man, and see if I turn black and white, bro. That
1: mank movie is a stone groove,
0: moondoggy. <laughs> yeah, now you're getting it, dude. I'm at Hal Rudnick on Twitter and Instagram. And jump onto my Twitch channel, twitch.tv. Slash Chuckleface doing a bunch of comedy shows over there. And I want to thank our producer, Adam Macias, holding it down. Thank you, Adam. The good folks at Starburns Audio, thank y'all. And Hoot Hoot, thank you, Al Nation. We'll talk to you next time. Good mank to you. Mank you. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys, that would make my hair bitch boys, bitch boys, bitch in the fuck
1: out of shit.